Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. Nathaniel Rateliff was set up at NYC's Town Hall this past Thursday, ready to play another stop on a solo tour, when that show, like many right now, was canceled. Instead of packing it in and heading back to the hotel, Nathaniel played to an empty theater, streaming the show on Facebook. Making Do is a central thesis of his new release, and it's still all right. Nathaniel has good reason to be optimistic, too. Despite some setbacks, he's been on a roll the last few years. With his band, The Night Sweats, he's been a standout at nearly every festival, created his own line of cannabis with Willie Nelson called The Night Stash, and this summer, if all's normal again, he's supposed to be touring with Bob Dylan. His new album is a real departure from what he's become known for, though. It's his first release without his band, The Night Sweats, in seven years, and it sounds much closer to the music he started making more than 20 years ago, more introspective and folky. In this chat with Bruce Hedlum, Nathaniel traces his musical lineage from his parents, who only allowed Christian music at home, to his work with Night Sweat's producer and brilliant musician Richard Swift. Swift died from complications of alcoholism in 2018, and a lot of Nathaniel's new songs are dedicated to him. These songs are his way of making sense of his friend's death, of letting himself and his audience know that despite the sadness, it's still all right. <laughs> This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce and Nathaniel Rateliff from GSI Studios in New York. He starts by playing the album's title track. That was lovely. Thank you. 
You know, I think every guitarist should just have to watch your right hand. You've got such a... Where did you learn to finger pick? I mean, I've done... It's a weird, almost like claw hammer style. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think I just kind of... When I was younger, I used to do a lot of like sort of uh, Almond Brothers kind of... <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd switch in between um, using a pick and then like doing double stops. So I'd just like fold my pick in between my pointer and my middle finger. Oh, really? And then at some point that started to turn into that mm-hmm. thing. And then, yeah, so. But you've got, I mean, your your bass notes, it's like a, like a train, but you've got the strum and you, you're picking after the strum. It's really, it's doing a lot of work there. Thanks. You know, the other thing is I can't really Travis pick, which is essentially the same. The... Yeah, you can't? I can like fake it, but mm-hmm. not in the same. Yeah, I watch other people do it. I'm like, damn it! Why haven't I figured that out yet? But <laughs> uh, well, that was fabulous. It just it, there was just so much going on in that song. So tell me about the song you just played for us. Um, well, that's the title track. The record was going to have you know that was that's the third title. But originally, I was going to name it Rush On, but I thought that that was a little too heavy, and being the title track. Um, the listeners would be drawn to listen to that first. Uh, and then I was going to name it All or Nothing because I was so excited about accomplishing writing that song because it was a little, the structure of it was a lot more, was a, a little more in depth than I'm used to like digging into. Um, uh, but then I was talking with a friend and like, you know, I, I'm surprised you didn't name this record and it's still all right because it kind of sums up the whole record. It, you know, it kind of, you're talking about loss and, um, and heartache and, but then trying to find joy, you know, like, um, and so that's, yeah, you know, I talk a lot about, um, it's like a, a conversation with myself and then also with other people uh, throughout the song, depending on which line it is, you know, so. People listening, a lot of them are going to know you from your work with Night Sweats. Right. Big, Brassy, soulful uh, songs like SOB and You Worry Me. But this is really kind of returning to what you started doing before the Night Sweats. Uh, yeah, I had probably 10, maybe seven years, mm-hmm. seven years for sure of like, you know, just slumming it, you know, living mm-hmm. living out of the van and trying to have a band with me. And I still, you know, a lot of the guys in the Night Sweats and this new project are from people who play with me from back in those days as mm-hmm. well. And you started, now your family, they were gospel singers, your mother and father. Yeah, my mom played in church uh, and my dad too, so it was a, kind of like a family band. Did but you I, did you have siblings that played in it as well? Uh, my, my sister, uh, mm-hmm. Heather, who's two years older than me, she played piano and sang. And then, you know, sometimes it would just be like my mom and dad. Uh, and then they would make me and my sister sing, so we'd have this like four-part harmony. But... It was certainly that era of, like, um, my mom and dad kind of came out of that, like, Jesus movement of the 70s and 60s. So more along the lines of, like, singer-songwriter, folky kind of stuff. My mom played 12-string. Because I think some people are, like, when you think of gospel, you think of, like, the staple singers or even, like... The Oak Ridge Boys or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or I, I just feel like some people think that it's, like, the scene from... Uh, you know, the Blues Brothers where James Brown is the pastor, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, 
especially when they think of the night sweats. I was like, no, nah. I was like, I, I listened to all that on my own. My mom did something <laughs> totally different, but it was a good upbringing um, musically, you know, at least I had a great home for, and lots of encouragement to, to, to play and to listen to music, you know, mm-hmm. like my, my dad and mom were always excited to like introduce something new to me. So. Really? And secular music as well? <clears throat> Not at first, but the, after my dad passed away, my mom sort of lightened up on the secular music. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my dad, you know, uh, unbeknownst to me, I had this like collection of secular music in the closet of all his old records. And so oh. um, I was able to like kind of go through that. And after he passed away, it also felt, made me feel like I had some sort of connection to him through those records. So, so. Before he passed, you found the records, or did you find them afterwards? After. He started to lighten up a little bit, too, before he passed away. Um, you know, because they, they they had some pretty—they uh, were very young when they joined the church and had a lot of traumatic stuff happen in their lives that led them into that. And so as they started to get into their 30s, they started to lighten up a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Do you remember the first record you found? Um, I— yeah, I remember finding like Muddy Waters, um, folk singer, and Muddy Waters sings Big Bill Bronzy, yeah. and then like some of the other stuff. It was like um, there was some moody blues in there, um, <laughs> you know, some unexpected stuff because yeah. that was that era of music he listened to. But also, my dad just started to be a little more comfortable about listening to the radio, and I remember like Bob Dylan coming on and just like having my mind blown or hearing Imagine for the first time. And wondering why, like, you know, I asked my parents, I was like, well, if, you know, if God created music, how come our songs in church aren't better than this song that John Lennon wrote? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> okay, that is blasphemous now. If yeah, I know. <laughs> well, and, you know, there was that whole idea. There was a humanist song, humanistic song. Mm-hmm. I was like, but we're humans. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. This, the the, the no question. heaven line has got to be, that's got to be a little trouble in that. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, you know what you have to do then? I'm sorry, what was your father's name? Uh, everybody called him Bud, but his real name was Cecil Clement. Oh, that's a great name. Yeah, uh, he hated it, but I think it was great. <laughs> okay, yeah, it, you've got to put the Cecil Clement, uh, Ray Liff, um list on Spotify, all the records you found. Oh, yeah, I mean, he was a huge Van Morrison fan too, so. Oh, okay. That which is like see. the early Van, you know, like, I think, you know, it, that really changed me a lot because I, I, my mom listened to it a lot as well. So, you know, it was a lot of moon dance. And then on my own, I found like Astral Weeks and the Bang Sessions and, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay. there's a lot of great stuff there. So After he died, did she change what she listened to? Yeah, she kind of like, she joined like a CD. <laughs> like, I don't know which which one of those companies it was, but like got a bunch of stuff like Almond Brothers and... um the band, I stole her, like, the best of the band CD, which was, like, my introduction. You know, I always thought, as it, you know, like, when you go to a record store and people are like, oh, the best of. But, like, the best of Bob Dylan and the band, like, that was, like, kind of my introduction to that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, it it sparked my curiosity. And then I, like, became a record collector and, like, started, you know, thumbing through everything I could get my hands on. And, you know, and was lucky enough to like find people who had like original bootlegs of the basement tapes and mm-hmm. and that stuff really like just kind of changed my life. And those are records that are huge parts of my life now. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember um do you remember any of the gospel songs you you sang? Oh yeah. I mean, that's like a 
It's like a, a bad radio station in my head, really. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> what were they? Just just a title or two. So oh, we'll get like the flavor. as the deer is one of the I think is one of the names. Um, Lord, I lift your name on high. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Wow. And my mom actually, she wrote her own songs too. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, and like her own religious songs, and still does. Um, and I guess that's one of those things I'd always love to do for her someday. She's always wanted to make a record. So, was, wow. Do yeah. you ever have you ever played one of her songs on stage? I haven't. No. It's for me. It's like a, you know, I feel so far removed from the religious side of things that mm-hmm. um, I don't want to encourage anyone to move that way. <laughs> <laughs> With the power of your voice, you will. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Convert <laughs> millions. millions of people. Yeah. That's the, the conversion is the problem I had. I think that's why I kind of mm-hmm. moved away from it because I was doing some work with the Hopi Native Americans. And um, I was there on an Easter Sunday, and I remember just feeling just embarrassed to be a Christian and to be like trying to force or, you know, just trying to like minister to people who's beliefs had been around so much longer historically than even mm-hmm. Christianity had been around. And that was, really made me question what we were doing. And Was this in Colorado? It, um, no, that was in um, the Hopi uh, Reservation, which is um, in the center of the Navajo Reservation, which is, we came in through Flagstaff, and I believe it's in Nevada. Mm-hmm. So were you doing, like, mission work? Yeah, I was, um, which I... You know, ended up not, you know, I was only, I was really, I was only 18 or 17 or 18. So it's hard to uh, be accountable for your decisions at that age, you know, like I was certainly still learning. Yeah. 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 One of my uncles was a minister on a, yeah, on a reservation, as we called them in Canada. And it was always very, uh, it's a strange. Yeah. When you say conversion, that's the thing that's a dangerous word, I feel like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I, I really like some of the other things we did. We worked a lot with uh, just like feeding homeless people and um, and talking to them like they're really people. Um, and I loved being a part of the Hopi community when I was there and learning about their culture. But I was more interested in learning about their culture than trying to point out what was what. Yeah, you know, try to find something wrong with it. You know, yeah. I was. I love your culture. Now drop it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was, you know, like, um, that was, you know, the core of Western expansion, you know? Yeah. Well, not even I love your culture, but just like we eliminate it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Along with, and we like your land. Yeah, we yeah. love your land. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we like that too. Uh, there's a lot of religious language or at least religious imagery in some of your songs, uh, in Expecting to Lose, beautiful right. about standing in the water. Uh, when you write those, are you are you conscious that that's that it comes from that tradition, or is it just is it just a language you know? Um, it's a language I know, and it's something I always loved about Leonard Cohen's songs. Like he was a Buddhist, but was you know loved the religion he was born into. And but if you listen to his songs, it was like they could be so sensual, but have these like references to. Um, biblical verse and since it's you know such a common <clears throat> i guess that language is so common or so well known at least at one point i feel like it's something people can relate to in, in a way mm-hmm. like you know even like the stand in the water um 
the reference of being baptized or something like that. We can, like, if you remove the religious aspect of it, you can still have this cleansing idea, you know, um, mm-hmm. that comes along with it. But it, it, I feel like it's a nice reference. It's a nice way to, it's nice vernacular, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back with more from Nathaniel Rateliff after the break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with Bruce and Nathaniel Rateliff. So tell me about uh, Richard Swift, who was yeah. who was uh, a collaborator of yours and a producer on Night Sweats. Yeah, I had met him years ago uh, in London. Was opening for Delta Spirit, and Matt Vasquez was a good buddy, and he loved Richard Swift stuff. And so that's when I was first introduced to him. But then it kind of took a while for us to circle back to each other, and I had. Sent him just randomly sent him demos uh, through the advice of a friend um, of the stuff I was doing in my attic just by myself, which eventually became the Night Sweats. He really liked it and wanted to make a record, and then I ended up having a record deal, and 
and my A&R guy suggested I work with them. And I was like, well, we've already decided we wanted to work together. So mm-hmm. um, so I went out to Cottage Grove, Oregon, which is just south of Eugene, where Richard had a studio by myself at first um, and just had a, a huge batch of songs. And we just kind of started working, you know, like mostly with one mic in the room. But it was like an instant, uh, I don't know, we just had like a kindred spirit, you know. And I know if you talk to anybody that knew Richard, he would, they would probably all say that they felt like he made them feel very special, you know. How did you build those songs? And I don't want to talk about Night Sweat's uh, songs, but were you always hearing those arrangements in your head when you were writing? I mean, I, I tend to have that with a lot of songs that I write, is hearing these other voicings, um, other instruments. And that's kind of part of the fun process, you know, once you get past the chords and the words and melodies um as filling in all those gaps and like figuring out what those other sounds are or you know because sometimes you'll be like oh and horns would be great here and then you try it and you're like that's not that's not the sound that i'm hearing in my head so you keep searching so i did that you know i kind of had a lot of that with richard and even like with the demos um because some of that material ended up being you know uh like songs like you need me uh, was one that I had written um, maybe around that first Night Sweats record, somewhere in there, but just never had a home. It, it reminds me, I mean, maybe it's a lack of imagination on my part, but musicians who can uh, think of just, you know, without another group of musicians in the room, who can who can think of those kind of arrangements for some songs. Um, it reminds me a little of Graham Parker was like that when he started in England. Right. He was this pub rocker, and then he went in and they did a whole... He was like this rhythm and blues guy. And I always right. thought, wow, how does somebody do that? Um, and then turn around and write, like you, acoustic songs. And, right. and what well, there was a nice thing about working with Richard too, because I, I would I would always have these, you know, like like I said, from the start of the song, there's always these other voicings you hear, these other sounds or instrumentation that you want. But that was really the thing that Richard was so good at is like uh, even if I had those ideas, sometimes he would be like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Which can be kind of, you know, um, you can get your feelings hurt, but you kind of have to, like, let go of that mm-hmm. and and know that, like, just try to stay out of the way of the song, you know, mm-hmm. and trust that somebody like Richard was trying to make the song the best it can be. But he would always have that just these, like, incredible ideas to make a mediocre song be a great song, you know. Um, and sometimes that was eliminating some of those voices and instrumentation that I thought made the song what it was. So, you know, yeah. Wow. Did he do the first Night Sweats album? I did the or? first and second one. And the second one, okay. Mm-hmm. And then? And then even the EP we did, he ended up like, uh, he mixed and um, I think he added a couple of things to it as well, so. Yeah. yeah. And then sadly he's gone. And he passed away, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, at 41, so. Pretty, pretty young. Did you see him before he? I saw him as soon as I heard he was in the hospital. I flew out there. I just kind of stopped everything. Yeah. And um, wanted to be there. to. I just wanted to know what was happening. You know, I just knew he was really sick. And then, um, yeah, and then, and then he pretty quickly went, I, I was there for a day and then left. And then he quickly went into hospice and I went back again. You know, to just like, I don't know, I wanted to shake him and like 
you know, I wanted him to be coherent and I wanted to talk to him and like, you know, try to make him fight for, for something, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. but he wasn't really, I wasn't really coherent by the time I got there. So. Are there particular songs written in this album about him? Yeah. You know, and it's still all right. There's moments uh, that it's, you know, there's moments where I'm talking about him. Rush On in particular is only just, is just for specifically Richard and kind of talking to him and sort of about him and that like, and I guess, you know, a lot of the album kind of deals with the same thing that Richard and I shared or, or, um, I, I guess it's the thing that we all share is this like un, unspeakable or undescribable brokenness. And I don't think we allow ourselves to be to be vulnerable enough to talk about to everyone. And I just I just kind of question whether, you know, if we allow ourselves to be able to, to vocalize those things and to realize that we all share that sort of similar um, aching that maybe it wouldn't be as heavy. So I guess like songs like Rush On, I'm really talking about recognizing that in him but I recognize it in myself as well. Okay. Do you want to play another song? Sure. I'll do a little upbeat one, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> this one's all or nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this one in particular, yeah, it's not very heavy. Uh, but I remember I, I played it for Richard, and it had taken me a long time to kind of figure out the chord progression. Um, but he was like, man, you can't be too Nielsen. So when we did the record, we really tried to, um, make the arrangement and the production on it a little more like, you know, a little touch of Schmielsen in the night. You, know, you, guess, you guys so. love Harry Nielsen. We both did, yeah, so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here we go. We'll be right back after a quick break. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, 
their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with more from Nathaniel Rateliff. When did you know you had this voice? Because uh, you, you do a lot of things in that song and I mean, right. over your career. I mean, you can sing in a lot of different ways. Um, it took me a while to be comfortable with it. And even or like since my start of a solo career until now, I feel like I've learned so much. Mm-hmm. And part of that process is learning how to be comfortable um, in your voice. How did you do that? I mimicked things for a long time just out of curiosity to see if my voice could do it or like try to understand it and like, and I guess this is the kind of thing that I think people take lessons for. I was just, I don't know if I just didn't have anything else to do <laughs> or what, but I mean, I was working the whole time. So, um, yeah, we should mention that as well as being a working musician, you always had a job. You, oh, yeah, all sorts of crappy ones too. So, well, but you, you know, like, like when you're a janitor, trucking, yeah, you were a janitor. <laughs> I was a janitor when I was 16 for a high school and I, when I didn't go to high school, so. You didn't go to high school. No, but you my last year of school was seventh grade. So, <clears throat> so then I ended up being like a janitor and groundskeeper, and it was kind of embarrassing, you know. Like, was, was that the school you would have gone to? Was it the mm-hmm. local school? Yeah. Wow. Um, I lived tough. in that town, so I should have been going to school there. But then I was like, during the school year, cleaning either cutting grass there or 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 cleaning the rooms at mm-hmm. you know like sort of a swing shift. But I would always sing. I just kind of, I started to love singing because I love music. And when I was younger, I was really embarrassed of it. But, you know, as I kind of grew out of the church singing into, you know, everything from trying to sing like the Everly Brothers and listen to their harmonies to like um, how Nat King Cole 
and um, Sam Cooke, how they uh, how they enunciated their words and how they shaped their words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even into like the early, you know, James Brown, the Fabulous Flames, like the, the his voice then, where he was more of a crooner versus like the funk days. I, I just love the characteristics and all of that. And, you know, and so it was like, how, you know, like just try to sing like that, you know, like, I guess, you know. Mm. Uh, you had good teachers. I, yeah, 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 I guess so. those guys were great <laughs> teachers. Uh, but you also do something that a lot of people don't do so much anymore, um, which is you use almost different voices. I mean, James Brown did do that, but a lot of singers now, I think, feel that I must use my authentic voice. And that's the voice they use for everything. You're, you'll belt, you'll whisper, you'll do a lot of different things with your voice. I mean, those are all my voice too. I mean, I well, yeah, I, know I think I think at a, at a time I struggled with the identity of what my voice was, mm-hmm. you know, and would tr- like on some of the earlier records, I felt like I would stay in, you know, and like like in memory of loss, I feel like my voice is kind of restrained because I'm not taking on different characteristics that I thought mm-hmm. the song needed, you know, or like. Songs like All or Nothing, like the song I just did, is totally different than the other one. But I didn't feel like I was singing in a character when I wrote it. It seemed like that voice was appropriate for that song. Mm-hmm. And so I try to listen to that, like like shape my voice to what the song requires. Did you have the songs going in, or were a lot of them worked out in the studio? I had most of them already demoed, and except for uh, All or Nothing. I'm sorry, All or Nothing was mostly done, but and it's still all right. I wrote one morning, like I had a, a loose sketch of it, and it's kind of like multiple processes of how I wrote that one, but then just finished it one morning um, before going to the studio and then recorded it that day, mm-hmm. So, which is a great feeling to like write something and then have it recorded in a matter of hours. And like this was like a real release, you know, so... I guess for someone who wrote songs while being a gardener and yeah. working at a truck depot and all of that, yeah, uh, writing on the road, you know, musicians complain about it. For you, that's like, well, it's still it's still hard for me because there's no personal space on the road, you know. Mm. Um, and there's also when you you know you have seven other goofballs you're hanging out with. There's this energy that consumes a lot of your time, which is you just like, you know, we're, we're all really close friends and we all want to hang out. And especially even like our crew, like, you know, some of the guys we've been touring with since we were in a van together. And now, you know, we have these big productions and their days are Mm -hmm. really long. So at some point, you know, when you have a day off, you're like, well, what are we going to do together? It's not usually, I'm going to sit in this room and Right all day. Yeah. It's usually like I'm gonna pour my heart out. I don't know. Can we have like like go to a water park or do something crazy today? You know, and like all have fun together. And <laughs> and so it. Um, <clears throat> but really, I'd like to see you and the crew at a water park. That could be your oh next side project. It's, yeah, it is a pretty good time. Yeah, it just, aren't you supposed to have kids for that? Or like with <laughs> no, you? Or, no, no, no. You can just yeah. go. Just like a bunch of like slightly intoxic- intoxicated adults. Yeah. Yeah. In okay. a water park. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you went in, this album has, uh, it's got a really beautiful sound. Thank you. It's a lot, um, I don't know how deliberate it was. It's a, it's at times a very 50s sound. It sounds like a lot of reverb. Am I right? Yeah. Or, uh, I mean, you know, we kind of 
try to follow the lines that, um, you know, as we worked with Richard, he would always, um, like, even the first record, like, we would make records for next to nothing with him, so I'd still have a record budget. And then I he would just be like, man, use that and invest it back into, like, your home recording space. And like, mm-hmm. here's the gear you need, which it basically set me up with everything that he had, you know. Um, I think out of just laziness, not out of helpfulness, because we were planning on working together a lot, and so he wouldn't want to, like, come over and have the same setup, yeah. you know. He's like, well, if I'm not going to work in my spot, at least your place has all the same stuff. Yeah. So, um, so we ended up with a lot of that kind of sounding stuff. I have, like, a AKG BX20 reverb, which is sort of like the... Like, we ran the strings through that, and I, they used that for Frank Sinatra's voice on certain things, and it's just mm-hmm. really rich. And uh, the BX-15 or 10 and a 25. Um, and so those are all analog reverb units that aren't plate reverbs. Um, mm-hmm. But I love that sound. It's it's hard so, to— So how do they work if it's not a plate? Is it— This actually has a giant coil in it. Like, mm-hmm. the BX-20 has a coil that's, like, four foot. Wow. Um yeah, they're they're a real pain if they break. There's really no one to fix them anymore that I know of. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, it, um, so essentially, it sends a signal through this giant spring, and then back out the other side. Wow. Um, but yeah, it it's hard to go. Yeah. I think with the twenty, you actually have to use like an effects loop and like be able to control it because the mm-hmm. there's I no way to reduce it. It's just like all verb or none. So yeah. yeah. By the way, we're in a studio here, and I can see all the guys in the booth. They're all on eBay now, seeing if there's old uh, oh, good luck smoke coils. Yeah, is there? Good uh, luck finding the BX15 or 10. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, there's a lot of fakes out there, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other side of the album, uh, and they're not going to hear it here, but I hope everybody gets this album and listens, is there's a lot of, uh, lot of voice, a lot of like choral right. uh, voicings in it. Um, which I'm assuming you brought in people to do that. That's not well. Like tonight, number two is just me and Patrick. Oh, is that right? Doing all. I know everybody's like, "Oh, you got a choir here." I was like, "No, well, there's two of us." Yeah, I'm just actually just keep layering it, doing different harmonies on top of each other. Mm-hmm. First, at first, doing it one on one, and then just like standing in the studio with four twenty ones, like singing into them while we're listening to the playback together. So wow. Well, it sounds great. Thank you. And you've got a lot of strings. And I think you're touring with strings, right? Yeah, we have a quartet with us. We we did like one night where we did three songs, and we brought in like a, I think it was nine or ten strings players. And it's like it was kind of like the, I just finished the studio at my house, and I was like, well, this is definitely the test of what we can do in here. And we ended up pulling it off and getting the songs done. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So. Yeah, those uh, musicians' unions. You're paying a lot of money for those yeah. guys. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of, like, Mellotron strings. Um, I feel like that was um, one of Richard's secret weapons, too. Um, the modern Mellotrons are pretty nice. I don't know. It worked for the Beatles and the Beach Boys, so I don't know why it wouldn't work now, you mm-hmm. know. So, yeah. And But it's got a nice—it gives the album this very nice late 60s folk right on. records. Remember, it was, it was usually— the not very good folk artists who suddenly had like symphony orchestras behind them. Right. I uh, mean, even, but this, this is really beautiful. The uh, five leaves left record. Uh, Nick Drake has like tons of orchestration on oh, it too. Yeah. But like, you know, even uh, like Leonard Cohen songs of Leonard Cohen, like 
there's some orchestration on there, but then there's these just arrangements of like really weird sounding instruments that like float in for a minute and then they're gone. I've mm-hmm. always loved that stuff though. Yeah, like, he, he uses a, a jazz harp on. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember which song, but it's all of a sudden you're like, is this a joke song? Because you hear the twang, twang yeah. in the background. <laughs> and then it just kind of fades out. Yeah. Could we coax you into one more song? I'm going to do Kissing Our Friends. That's beautiful. The guitar did very well. You were good too, but the guitar did nicely. <laughs> yeah, it helped in thank, there a little bit. Thanks yeah. so much for coming in. My pleasure. You know, thanks I for hope we me. play this and I hope. People at your church are like, how did we lose that guy? Uh, we got to get him back. He's <laughs> <laughs> not happening. Yeah. <laughs> well, they can dream. Thanks to Nathaniel Rateliff for stopping by to talk to Bruce and for playing songs from his new record. You can hear his new album, and it's still all right, wherever you get your music. And check out our favorite Nathaniel Rateliff songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Plus, Nathaniel's put a few of his own favorite songs on the list as well. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mila Bell, Leah Rose, Matt Laboza, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to Musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.